I've learned so much from Stephen's podcast this year, but taking the class with him this summer was really so much more informative. I really like podcasts, and I suspect you probably do too. But sometimes you need something deeper. Sometimes you need something more dynamic. Which is why Tent Theology will be running a spring school, starting on the 29th of March and running every two weeks until the 3rd of May. At the spring school, we will be going line by line through the Sermon on the Mount. There'll be space for teaching, input, and conversation. All the classes are online, and I've arranged them to meet as many time zones as possible. It's a lot of fun. Last summer, I ran something similar, and I asked some of the students for their feedback and to see if they would recommend something like this to anyone else. I enjoyed wrestling with the great theological material that Stephen recommended and guided us through, and this all made sense to me despite my lack of theological training. A Stephen Backhouse Bible study is like no other. It is awesome. It is next level Bible studying. It was wonderful to read all these great texts that he put in front of us and discuss them with people all over the world. I'm definitely going to be joining the next class. For prices, times, and to register, send an email to info at tenttheology.com. Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Today on the podcast, we are welcoming Dr. Melody Green, who is engaging in a discussion with me, myself. Uh, this is Chris Marchand, one of the co-hosts of Tent Theology, and uh, Stephen. We will be talking with her on the politics of J.R.R. Tolkien. So for those of you that are Tolkien fans and have immersed yourself in his works, as so many have done, we're hoping you can uh, gain some insights into the political dimensions of his writing and thought that maybe you've never thought about before or considered. Dr. Melody Green is Dean of Urbana Theological Seminary. She's also Assistant Professor of Christianity and Culture there. And uh, you will find her also at Tolkien Conference, which uh, happened earlier this year in 2021. Check out TolkienConference.com. Dr. Green writes on uh, a, a number of literary subjects, particularly C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, George MacDonald, The Inklings, but also on uh, children's literature. She even has a, an article uh, about Doctor Who, which I know she enjoys as well. Dr. Green is an old friend, and I even once took a course with her many, many years ago. And so today, we're excited to share our conversation with her about the politics of J.R.R. Tolkien. So in, in reviewing The Lord of the Rings especially, and just, and just thinking of Tolkien's works, one of the things that I, I, I pick up on are, are opposites or, uh, you know, equal and opposite characters that they kind mm -hmm. of parallel each other. And uh, there's many characters within Tolkien's universe that people are just, they're fascinated with. And I, and I think part of the reason that they're fascinated is they don't quite know what to do with these characters. And that's why we keep talking about them. One of the characters that I'm fascinated with and people never know what to do with is Tom Bombadil. And uh, he's weird too, because so my, my, uh, my fifth grade son, they, they read Fellowship of the Ring last, last year in, in their school. And uh, kids 
especially you know th these young modern kids they don't know what to do with the character with, with all of his rhyming and his in his weird uh, cheesy uh, poetry <laughs> but um here's what i'm intrigued with with tom bombadil he is the lord of nature in a sense lord of the of the of the forest i mean maybe i'm getting his title wrong and yet he says and it's not mine i let everybody do as they please i i let them live I'm Lord and master, but I'm not, I'm not in charge of them. It's, it's this strange uh, perspective that he has. And to me, what I see the opposite of, and maybe, maybe there could be other opposites, is, is Saruman and how he continually chooses to grasp for power. Even at his lowest point, he thinks, well, maybe I could, I could still rule something. I could still have something. And he goes to the Shire. And so I, I'm curious, just on your perspective of this, this dynamic of these power struggles within Lord of the Rings, and, and maybe we could just start with, what do you think, what do you make of Tom Bombadil? That's an excellent question. Um, it's funny because just recently, I've been involved in two different conversations with friends of mine who said, Tom Bombadil is their favorite character in the Lord of the Rings. And I'm teaching a Tolkien class right now where I have several students who said, I don't understand why Tom Bombadil is even in the book. So he seems to, as you point out, draw out these opposite responses to him. But the two people I know who have said he is their favorite character, they both had some of the same things that they said, which made me think a little bit differently than I had been thinking about him. Um, one is that he's free. He is free in a way that nobody else is. He has this title, Master. In fact, um, if you remember there's <clears throat> that conversation when Frodo is talking to Goldberry and she says, who is Tom Bombadil? He's already asked Tom who he is. And he's like, I'm, who are you without your name? I'm Tom Bombadil. But when he asks her, she says, he is. He is as you have seen him. He's the master of wood, water, and hell. And Frodo says, then all the strange land belongs to him. No, indeed, she answered. And her smile faded. That would indeed be a burden. She added in a low voice as if to herself, the trees and the grasses and all things growing or living in the land belong each to themselves. Tom Bombadil is the master. No one has ever caught old Tom walking in the forest, wading in the water, leaping on the hilltops under light and shadow. He has no fear Tom Bombadil is master. So it's interesting what Goldberry thinks of as the master is being master is, well, no one's ever caught him. He's not afraid of anything. And he's master of it in the way that a person might be master of a craft instead of in the way that um, a master would rule over people. But at the same time, we do see that Tom Bombadil actually does make some decisions about the old forest. He is the one who tells the, the evil tree that no, you can't do this and you know, hits the tree and sings the song of power that lets the tree lets go of, is it Pippin that was caught inside? And Frodo's down in the water and Stan pulls Frodo out, but Tom Bombadil rescues Pippin. So there is more going on than he or Goldberry actually communicate, which makes things I think very interesting about him because that's what the others see too in, in Rivendell. He's definitely a person of power, but he limits himself. So I think part of what's happening with Tom Bombadil, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm going a slightly different direction than you're thinking, but part of what's happening with Tom Bombadil is you've got a person who could be very involved in the politics that are currently going on in Middle-earth. He could step up and do a lot of what 
Elrond and Gandalf and the other characters who have powerful positions are having to think through, but he limits himself deliberately. His boundaries are the boundaries that he's given himself and he won't go out of them. So I think that's part of what Tolkien actually looks at as good leadership is you know what your boundaries are and you, within those boundaries, you do what you have to, but you don't do anything more than what you have to to keep things, keep the peace. Yeah, th that's one of the tensions in um, the Council of Elrond. Uh, uh -huh. I mean, by, by the way, just from a literary perspective, I, I think the chutzpah to have a chapter like the council, it's so long and it just keeps going. And, and as an adult, I'm enthralled. But again, I, I'm seeing it through the eyes of my sixth grader where he was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 14 primary speakers, 33 different people who are actually quoted or speaking. Can't imagine what the problem is. <laughs> Tons of history. <laughs> yeah, like a novella unto itself. Um, uh, but in, in the midst of that, yeah, Bombadil's name gets brought up. And I think what I'm interested in, and, and I am asking this question in, in the sense of who I am as a follower of Christ, mm -hmm. action or inaction, and what am I called to do? And I feel mm -hmm. this tension with Bombadil. I, like, I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, could, could Bombadil have just, I mean, they, they talk about him kind of sitting on the ring for a while, mm -hmm. and maybe hiding it, and then they'll eventually find it again. So what's the point? And I thought, well, no, couldn't he have just taken it and walked right up to Mordor himself and never, nobody would have bothered him because he's Tom Bombadil. Would that have been the easier solution? And instead, counterintuitively, it goes to the least of these. It goes to the uh -huh. smallest and most vulnerable. Uh -huh. I, I don't know, how do you, what do you make of those dynamics, um, especially in terms of responsibility in our own lives? That's interesting. Um, I would say first that Bombadil sees his own responsibility as being very limited within one very specific area. So he would not have willingly walked to Mordor because it's out of his bounds. It's not his to do. Um, and I think also Gandalf makes a really interesting point about Tom Bombadil. When they're, when they're talking about sending it to him, could we do it? Would he keep it? Gandalf's like, uh, he, he'd probably forget about it. And he, it just doesn't have the same hold over him. So I don't know that Bombadil has the same responsibility as Gandalf and Elrond because of that. Not just because he deliberately limits himself, but because in some ways he doesn't, I don't want to say understand, but the ring just doesn't do the same things to him that it does to other people. So it, it's not part of his conversation. It's not part of his responsibility to work with it. I'm thinking of, there's a passage in one of C.S. Lewis's books where he talks about sin, and I'm trying to remember which book it is, but what he basically says is that um, it's no great thing for he himself, C.S. Lewis, to not gamble because he has no temptation to gamble. But for another person who really struggles with, him, with gambling to actually not do it, that's a huge thing. So for Bombadil to reject the ring, it's no big deal because that's just who Bombadil is. There's no temptation there. Because there's no temptation there, he's also not going to understand why this is so important to everyone else. And I don't know that he has to because he already has his own set of these are the things he's taking care of. These are the things he's in charge of. And, you know, I've taken my own Tolkien class. Uh, you know, I've, that's been part of my college experience. And it's, of course, a work that I come back to. I'm not, I'm not mm -hmm. a scholar in it. But... Mm -hmm. Uh, one thing that we must, that I've been taught to resist is to read the tea leaves of this in a sense, or, or to take a dispensationalist 
uh, interpretation where where I want you to tell me, well, who Saruman is in the real world? Who like, <laughs> I, I, we're going to allegorize this to the nth degree, right? We don't do that, right? Right. We have, we have to resist that temptation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, like I, I want you to prophetically give me the interpretation today. Who do you see in the real world? <laughs> Uh, I think I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> okay, fine. I haven't thought about that. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, so, it, yes. so I grew up with, you know, kind of Pentecostal dispensationalist theology that, you know, every, every, but everything in Revelation had a one-to-one comparison of what was going to happen in the real world. You know, it always came back to Russia for some reason. All that aside, we still have this tendency to see ourselves in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I read Lord of the Rings, I think, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be an elf. <laughs> I want to be, yeah, I could be one of them. And then uh-huh. I think, no, may, well, maybe I could be somewhere in, in, you know, Strider and Aragorn and I could be a man. And then when I, when I really come down to it, I'm probably am just a lowly hobbit as really what it comes down to. Right. And uh, yeah. So uh, what, where do you make in that in terms of, uh, Again, not to make a one-to-one comparison, but where do we find ourselves within within Lord of the Rings? That is interesting. Um, I know I've said that word several times, but the funny thing is when you said first, we're asking this question, the first thing I thought of was a class I took on Tolkien when I was an undergrad. I believe we may have even had the same professor for that class. But when I took the class, one of the things he made us do as students was divide up he put signs on the wall, hobbit on one wall, elf on one wall, human on another, dwarf on another. We had to stand up and go get up and go stand by what we thought we were. It was fascinating because we had a couple of people who thought they were elves. We had one person who thought he was a dwarf, a few people who really liked being human and everybody else was a hobbit. And I think that's, that's something that says a lot because there's a lot about hobbits that have to do with who we are in terms of what we like, in terms of what makes us comfortable. What is a hobbit? It's a person who's, I was going to say short, that's not not exactly helpful here, but it's someone who's, they're comfortable, they like a life of relaxation, they like to eat a lot, they like the things that stay home, be warm and fuzzy, but there's another side to them, and that is that they can stand up and fight when they need to. But there's not a lot in their life that calls them to do that. If you think about um, each of the main hobbits we know, we've got Bilbo. He left home because the first time because he kind of got tricked into it. Uh, that was that was definitely a game that Gandalf was playing with him. Oh, he liked it once he'd done it, but he didn't just go out looking for adventure. I wonder though how much we really are. See, I've just said we're probably hobbits, but. I don't know. I really think it's more like that each of those four different types of people are a little bit of us in different ways and that we're all a mixture of them. That the elf part, that's, you know, our more creative side. Well, that's not fair. I'd have to think about that a little more, which is what, but I don't know that we're just one. Mm. Um, But thinking back to the topic of like parallels and balances with characters. I think they all balance each other out. And that's part of why on the journey that Frodo has, he has to meet different people, elves, dwarves, Hmm. wizards, and so forth, 
and he has to be they all have to be part of this thing that he's doing while bombadil is on the outside everybody else is on the inside of this and is part of this bombadil switzerland <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, you know one thing that i i notice in in his universe uh, is yeah. that there's hierarchy that might not sit well with many of us mm-hmm. um and and maybe for me it helps me to call myself a hobbit in that sense because then it just it kind of keeps me in my place i'm just called to be faithful to do with the time that i've been given you know to use that 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 quote and and i'm not off thinking about like i don't really understand the weight of responsibility that gandalf has like i don't i don't really know what his job is i i'm just kind of here and going please gandalf help <laughs> help when you can <laughs> Um, but be, but there's a hierarchy in the sense that Gandalf actually really knows more of what's going on, uh, mm-hmm. and you know all all of these kinds of things. Uh, what I I guess how do you read? I don't know enough about Tolkien's understanding of the hierarchy of his own universe. Mm-hmm. And did he did he believe our own universe has that same hierarchy of power? Ooh, that's interesting. I'm grabbing a book right here, Tolkien's Letters, mm. that may or may not help answer this question. But I'm gonna I'm gonna give say two parts of this. As a Catholic, Tolkien definitely believed in hierarchy. He believed that, you know, God is above all. And within the Catholic, um, the Catholicism that he practiced, there's definitely angels and hierarchies within the angels. Humans are a little lower than the angels. Animals are lower than humans. It's a very well thought out structure. And we see that structure in Middle Earth. We've got different types of, there's the Valar and the Maiar. They're both types of angels um, that are under Iluvatar or Eru, the one. And then there's those, I almost said critters, pardon me. There are those different characters, the Maiar, the Valar, the Maiar, Gandalf's the Maiar. We get under those, then we get the elves. Humans are called second born or the, ch- the second, yeah, the second born children of Iluvatar. So they, at least in the minds of the elves, maybe a little bit lower than the elves. Dwarves were presented as definitely lower than the others because they weren't even created by Iluvatar. They were created by one of the um, Valar who got impatient. And Iluvatar had the grace to give them the life that the Valar wanted them to have, but they're not in the same place as the children of Iluvatar. Hobbits, interestingly, don't fit into the structure at all, which I think is part of where Tolkien's own... It's not as solid as it first appears, the, the hierarchy, because the hobbits in their own community, they don't have a ruler overall. Sam is the mayor of Hobbiton by the end, but he's not the king of all Hobbiton or all the Shire. There is no person who rules over all of the Shire. Saruman tries to make that happen and it's, a wrong, it's the wrong thing to do. So it's small communities that are kind of equal to each other, don't really have a centralized government, and yet they acknowledge, yeah, there's a king out there or there should be a king out there, but there's not a whole lot of interaction there with the rest of the world. So I think he has a hierarchy and then he has this other thing that shows that the hierarchy is not the end all be all. But I grabbed the letters of Tolkien because there's a letter that I think kind of helps us understand some of what Tolkien's doing with that, with giving Gondor a clear hierarchy with a king over everybody within the humans and then And so in terms of government, I guess is what I'm saying, versus in terms of what we could call what the different creatures are. In terms of creation of beings, there's definitely a hierarchy. In terms of government, not as much. 
Um, so we get Gondor. There's definitely supposed to be a king overall. There's a return of the king that everybody, that will make everything better. But then you get the Shire where, yeah, government's not such a good thing. So this letter that I mentioned, it was written when Tolkien's son, Christopher, was drafted into the military and he was um, in the Royal Air Force. So he's at a training camp, 18 years old, trying to figure out what's going on in the world. His dad writes him this letter. My political opinions lean more and more to anarchy, philosophically understood, meaning abolition of control, not whiskered men with bombs, or to unconstitutional monarchy. I would arrest anyone who uses the word state. And then he goes on about, you know, ex explaining England as a state and why, we, yeah, shouldn't use that word. If we could get back to personal names, it would do a lot of good. Government is an abstract noun, meaning the art and process of governing and should be an offense to write it with a capital G or so as to refer to people. If people were in the habit of return, current, uh, referring to King George's council, Winston and his gang, it would go a long way to clearing thought and reducing the frightful landslide into theocracy. Theocracy is what he's using to describe people over there ruling the people over here, that distance between the people who are ruling and the people who are being ruled. Are you saying, just to clarify on that what? word, did you say theocracy? Theocracy, it's a pronoun? Own word. What? His own word, it's a pronoun. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. I want to make sure I heard that correctly. Yes. Um, so then he adds that it, within this letter, um, the, most imp the most improper job of any man, even saints, who at least at any rate were at least unwilling to take it on, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it. And at least all of those who seek the, and least, of, sorry, least of all those who seek the opportunity. And at least it is done only to a small group of men who know who their master is. The medievals were only too right in taking Nilo Episcopari, um, I don't want to be the leader, as the best reason a man could give to others for making him a bishop. Give me a king whose chief interest in life is stamps, railways, or racehorses, and so forth. He's so Tolkien himself, he says it's either anarchy or unconstitutional monarchy, either no leaders or that leader who just has the absolute power, but they really don't wanna be a leader. They'd much rather be playing with their stamp collection. So I think that says a lot about the hobbits. And I've forgotten what the original question was. So I really hope that helped answer it. <laughs> well, you know, Stephen, you've been waiting patiently. And, and I think, I think uh, Dr. Green has unlocked the key here with this letter. With this letter, this is fascinating. This is worth yeah. discussing. I'm curious what thoughts or questions strike you as as you hear that letter being read. So, Dr. Green, I was here, uh, while you're talking. I'm thinking, can we talk about magic for a little bit? Okay. For a book that has a wizard as a main character and probably the most famous wizard in the world is Gandalf, there's not actually a lot of magic happening. Right. in Lord of the Rings. So what do you think, can we talk a little bit about power and magic and what, and what Tolkien was, was doing with this idea of um, concentrating power and then using it for your own will, I guess. That would be magic, wouldn't it? Is when you concentrate power and then you, you bend the world to your, according I'm, to your will. I'm not sure that's how Tolkien would define okay. magic. That's a, okay. that's, really interesting. I'm looking at the passage, the mirror of Galadriel, where 
um, Sam actually says to Frodo that he would love to see more elf magic. And then Galadriel comes along and says, here, Sam, I'll show you this. And she says, this is, I think, what you mean when you say magic, but I, I don't really know what that word means. Right. So we know we see Sauron use magic. The ring is magic. The ring gives him power over other people. The nine rings he gave to the ring wraiths have all kinds of yeah. magic in them. We know yeah. Gandalf uses magic because we see that moment like in the in the Return of the King and he's going into battle and he lifts up his hand in a white light. It's it's something like that in the book. I know the movie shows it a little bit differently, but it, it still happens in the text. I'm actually seeing the scene from the movie right now, so I'm. I'm I know it's captured our imagination. <laughs> films, yeah. um, but we know he can, but he uses it very sparingly. He doesn't <laughs> control people's wills or minds. Exactly. Though. Yeah. But it seems to be the same source, maybe that okay. Sauron's magic comes from. I don't know that Galadriel's does. I'm not sure. Because Tolkien never really defines and explains what magic is or why or how. But it's still something that you can use it to, you can abuse it like Sauron does to control others and give yourself more power. Or you can use it sparingly like Gandalf does only when you have to. Now he does light up his staff walking through Moria. That's definitely a use of magic. But then there's another moment when Gimli says to him something about, well, if Gandalf could start a fire and I'm sorry, it was, it was Legolas who says that because Gandalf responds, if the elves could go get the sun because he's like, I need something to burn if I'm going to have a fire. So his magic clearly has boundaries and rules. He can't just make things happen, but we also don't know that much about it. And the other question becomes how much of Gandalf's magic is actually because he is a Maiar and yeah. how much of it is because he has one of the rings of power. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask, is there a sense of um, people acquiring, can, there's no secret, is there any secret knowledge in Tolkien's world? Could, 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 a, could a hobbit start, could a hobbit turn uh, his staff into a glowing rod of light? Or, or is it something that Gandalf can do because Gandalf is basically an angel? Or is it something that he, Gandalf does because he knows the secrets of creation that anyone I, could learn? Give me just a moment. I feel like there's an answer to that and a, a subtle answer um, in a place that we might not expect. Which, uh, when, as what? you look it up, as you look it up, mm-hmm. like a parallel would be uh, another universe I'm immersed in is Star Wars, where it, there's a it's apparent like anybody can kind of tap in and tap into the power if you try hard enough or if you're open enough to it. And that's a right. fascinating question within the, the Lord of the Rings universe. Because I don't think he thinks of it as the force. I don't think he thinks yeah, it's the force. Definitely not. But I, it's just because of the types of people who are powerful in his world. Right. It doesn't, they don't seem like you could aspire to them. You just either are one or you aren't. <laughs> you couldn't become one. You couldn't, but, but we do get the sense. I'm sorry to have interrupted. No, um, it's good. We get the sense when Frodo is talking to Gollum and they first capture Gollum, Sam and Frodo first capture Gollum. You know, Frodo makes Gollum swear on the ring. And then later, the gate to Mordor, he basically makes Gollum redo that oath. And the second time he actually says, if I put on this ring, I could command you to jump 
off a ledge and you would do it. Mm-hmm. So Frodo is aware or is becoming aware there's something really fascinating happening there with this ring and Frodo that we only see a little bit of from the outside. Um, but he's becoming aware that this ring could give him some power that he didn't used to have. But is it really Frodo or is it the ring? Right. And of course, Frodo putting on the ring at the end is spoiler alert. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Sorry, guys, if you didn't know. That's his undo. I mean, that's his failure. Like he doesn't, Mm -hmm. he's not this triumphant Lord of all the universe who strides forward. He actually fails and is broken by the lust for power. And it it seems to me that ultimately everyone would fail, even probably Sauron. He just never gets, well, he does fail. (laughs) Exactly. That is the message of, or the, the, I don't want to say the moral of the story, but part of what this story is all about is that lust for power at whatever level you're at, whether you're Frodo or remember Sam, there's a little bit where he's carrying the ring and he starts to get, feel the temptation. He has a vision of being a a big man on campus. Yeah, exactly. But it is still within his world. It's not going to give him absolute power over everything. What I was actually looking for is when when Faramir has captured Sam and Frodo and they're talking through, Faramir actually gives Frodo a lot of information about humans and men. Um, and he talks about there's three different kinds. There's the, the men of Numenor, there's the middle people who are what the Rohan people are, and then there's the wild people that, you know, they're just out there in the woods and they're crazy, wild. He doesn't say crazy. I said crazy. But then he says about how the men of Numenor became enamored of the darkness and the black arts. Some were given over wholly to idleness and ease. So that right there suggests that even though hobbits love idleness and ease, it's not necessarily a good thing, but that's an aside. And some fought among themselves until they were conquered in their weaknesses by the wild men. So this is the people from Numenor when they've resettled in Middle Earth. It's not said that evil arts were ever practiced in Gondor or that the nameless one was ever named in honor there. And the old wisdom and beauty brought out of the West remained long in the realms of uh, the sons of Elendil the Fair. So what Faramir is saying to Frodo and Sam is that we have this ancient history in um, Gondor. We're from the Numenorians. We've got everything they had. The Numenorians did have magic but there were Numenorians who practiced black arts because they were influenced by Sauron. So again, how they, the black arts are that desire for power and that temptation yeah. to try to, well, to live forever when you're not supposed to. Elves yeah. can, humans can't. Um, the desire to, there was actually human sacrifices mentioned in the Numenorian chapter of the Silmarillion. Yeah, yeah, I was going to so ask you about that, yeah. All of this when people are trying to get magic who don't have it or shouldn't have it, it seems like it's always evil. So this is where I think Tolkien as, as an anarchist comes out because mm-hmm. obviously like he even points out, an anarchist doesn't mean a beardy guy with a bomb. It, it means your attitude towards power. And the anarchist right. is always trying to give it, give it away. Whereas exactly. the hierarchist or whatever you want to call them is trying to grasp it and concentrate. Excellent. Yes, yes. And so Tolkien is thinking, I, I'm not, power is dangerous. It's not something to accumulate. It, it, it's bad for everybody when somebody has too much of it. Exactly. Including the person who has it. <laughs> exactly. So and that's part given of why, away. Yeah, yeah, it's part of why Gandalf is actually relieved when he can't help Frodo anymore. There's a moment yes. when he looks, looks to the that's east. That's right. And then he's like, well, 
I can't. I can't. Yeah. Basically, I can't find it. Um, well, good. At least that that temptation's over now. So yes, I, you're, yeah. you're right. That's so interesting. That the temptations are always to to power, right? Every time mm-hmm. any character is tempted, it's always that they could have this power to do something good, even or that they could do what they wanted. And so it's a relief for these characters when they mm-hmm. no longer have control. Right. It yeah. is interesting. You said that every temptation is to power. There's also, I would say, the opposite temptation to despair, to giving up power when you should. Be okay. Okay. So you got Denethor and Theoden are both examples of people who should have stepped up. Right. And and acted on the power that they had and did not. And in Theoden's case, he changes because he listens to Gandalf. Denethor doesn't listen to Gandalf. Is the moral of the story listen to Gandalf? <laughs> or is it more about taking responsibility? Actually, I like that. Moral of the story is listen to Gandalf. Listen to Gandalf. Um, <laughs> we now need bracelets that say, what would Gandalf do? Uh, the, the temptation, I think that's still wrapped up in the power that you're talking about. That temptation is about power, but it's not just to take it when you shouldn't take it, but not to step into that position. Right, right. But yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, we, under, Mm -hmm. I don't think in any uh, definition we would say that Tolkien was a pacifist, but he is definitely ambiguous about military power as Mm -hmm. a solution to problems. Mm -hmm. Do you know, have you done much work in his own experience as a soldier and how he then works that out in his books? Of, what of I would what it say is to be a soldier is you re- is to really look at that de- in depth. You need to read John Garth's um, Tolkien in the Great War. Okay, it's an entire study of how World War One affected uh, Tolkien's book. So John Garth is a brilliant scholar who actually did some amazing research through documents in British um, British government documents. In some cases, where was Tolkien when at these different in these different wars? He even figured out that at one point, Tolkien and A.A. Milne, who created Winnie the Pooh, were actually in the same place at the same time. But of course, neither of them were Tolkien and A.A. Milne yet in the way that we think of them. So John Garth did this amazing set of research. The first part of the book is just all of that. And then the second part of the book is looking at how these things are worked out in his literature. And he does, Garth looks at things like, um, I think one of the things that stands out the most to me in that is some of the visual imagery like looking at the faces in the dead marshes yeah the way they're described is very much looking through a gas mask in the middle of the mustard attack did i say yeah anyway (laughs) you know what i mean mustard gas attack mustard gas yes like the visual representation is definitely there and i do i do think at some level that's a lot of what tolkien is talking about is in the Lord of the Rings, working out when is a war just? When do we need to step up and take that power? Because you get that balance. There are the people like Gandalf who just have it. People like Denethor and Theoden who should be doing something they're not. People like Boromir who get tempted to power and because of his temptation, things went very, and that he gave into the temptation, things went very badly for a while. He's forgiven. He confesses and is forgiven by Aragorn, but that still was not good what happened because of that. So I think it's, it's I had forgotten again what the question was, but the balance of power is a complex one. 
how does the person know when they're the person who's supposed to step up or not or do something or not which is probably why frodo's statement i will take the ring but i do not know the way is in many ways the bravest thing that is said in the entire lord of the rings not just because mm. he's offering to die in a horrible yeah. way most likely but because that's the biggest risk is someone who shouldn't be stepping into a position that's going to affect other people's lives is this someone who should be doing it or not and elrond and says i believe this task is appointed for you and then gladriel yeah. repeats it later yes you're the person who should be doing this so and all the military all the military might is mm -hmm. used to help facilitate that journey so yes and then right at the end Aragorn's final stand is they know they're going to die, but they they're doing it to save a bit of time. Like they're just hoping that they'll be it'll keep keep yeah. the eye of Sauron off of Frodo and Sam. And everything is always like the military might or the killing is not the. I think the movies may have done us a disservice, or at least they've they've many <laughs> created in people uh, mm -hmm. the idea that it's all about swords and magic, when actually it's about self sacrifice and humility. Exactly. And, and and Sam and Frodo throw away their weapons at the end. I mean, they mm -hmm. don't even use them. And so it's just like there's I th I know Tolkien is doing something more with fighty fighty swords and sandals kind of stuff than I think we think he is. I, yes. I was talking to my friend David Benjamin, a friend to this show and who listeners of this program will probably listen to Nomad podcast as well. And he's a singer songwriter and he's also a Tolkien fan and a Silmarillion fan and cool. we were talking about about this and and he was saying well, you know like yeah sometimes you got to fight the orcs and because because he and I are both committed to non-violence uh -huh. uh, and but and we realized that Tolkien was was not but that's fine but then <laughs> but then we realized yeah it's all very well people all these Christians using Tolkien as their justification for fighting evil but the evil in Tolkien's world are always orcs Mm -hmm. um there is a that that means if you're going to draw a lesson you have to dehumanize your human enemies in order to make out that they are orcs <laughs> you know right. there's there's more going on like i i wonder what would happen in lord of the rings if all of the enemies were actually just human beings and in fact mm -hmm. when you meet human being enemies they are treated with a lot more awareness right like when faramir yes. He wonders, he says, I wonder if this Southron, if he has a family back home, and I wonder if he thought he was doing something evil. And mm -hmm. there's that kind of like the only way Tolkien can have his his justified violence is if his enemies are inhuman monsters. And as soon as they become human, you can't justify the violence anymore. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he justifies that violence either. Yeah. The only reason the men from the South are part of the people they're fighting is because of who they've aligned themselves with. And they yes. don't. They, they don't have the choice, the, the good guys will say, don't have the choice of saying, well, we'll only fight orcs when humans and orcs are mixed in together fighting against them. But yeah, right. I, I think that that's a really good observation that Tolkien's, a lot of the violence that does happen, it's against orcs. It's against a giant dragon. It's yeah. against, um, like in the Battle of the Five Armies, yes. it's very clear that the hobbits, or the hobbits, the dwarves, the humans and the elves should not be fighting against each other and they should be right. united against a different enemy actual monsters yeah exactly yeah, yeah exactly yeah, the yeah, actual yeah. monsters in their world which are not yeah. the more human characters but the more 
fantasy creatures that are that are in and of themselves. I know Tolkien's not into allegory. I'm looking at a picture of Tolkien right here, although I'm gonna like he's gonna frown at me if I say the wrong thing. So I apologize. <laughs> I keep looking. Down. I despise allegory in all its forms. <laughs> exactly. So he's not doing allegory, but at the same time, you can't help but think about um, exactly. when you see his monsters as embodiments of evil, and yeah. that's really the the whole idea of it, and yeah. that they're not human they're not that's not what they're supposed to be so i think it is very easy for and it, it it concerns me sometimes when i see christians using tolkien examples when they probably shouldn't because as you say they're not he's not pro fighting he's pro little people that yeah. sounds really odd when we're talking about hobbits but he's pro <laughs> the the yeah. individual living their lives in the best way that they can Exactly. and allowing them to do that yeah i will i have to say as we're talking about power there is one other character we really should talk about and that's galadriel because she you know is offered the ring she could be a very powerful person and it's a struggle for her to turn it down um i'm assuming and i could be wrong you've read the unfinished tales and the silmarillion and galadriel has this incredibly complex rewritten multiple times backstory but power is for her something that's very, very tempting. And so when we get to that moment in the Lord of the Rings, it seems like it's just sort of a moment there that Frodo's offering somebody else powerful the ring and they say no and turn it down. And yes, this is still going on the same direction. But in her own story, that is a huge turning point in her life that she realizes that, no, I don't want this power. I do want this power, mm. but it's wrong. I want mm. this power very badly. She even admits, I thought about what would happen if I got the ring and what I could do. But she's reached a point in her own life where she realizes that power in that way is not going to be good for anybody as much as she would like it. So, like I said, we have to bring her in as a hero because she does turn down power when she could have so easily taken over. And it would be a very different story. Okay, I, I have I have two more questions. Uh -huh. Maybe Galadriel is our, is our jumping off point. Um, there's a question that I have that really in, in some ways pertains to our age. And then there's another question that maybe I'll, I'll, I'll end on a very heartwarming note, maybe let's say. Okay, but here's, here's the question that I have uh, of, of our age. Um, the last time that I read through Lord of the Rings, one of the things that struck me the most was all the, the characters as they were traveling through the, 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 the landscape, they were looking out upon a world that had been they they had, they were looking out on decay, and then all the and like like Galadriel, and and I'm a Hobbit, right? So I'm kind of like going, yeah, what are, what are you talking about again? I don't really get what you're saying, lady. Is she was she was looking out at her world and seeing that the time of glory or of power of of whatever the 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 wonderful culture that they had was changing, and it was time for her to leave. Mm -hmm. And I, I I was looking at the whole book is this sad lament on a passing world and we look out upon our world. Uh, how do you, what can you say to us in the sense of as we look at it at our own world and maybe even us as, as us Americans, we look and we go, is America passing? Is America fading into the West <laughs> and, and it, it shall be no more? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I'm just, I just see this vast parallel. And, but maybe this is the question that all civilizations ask, should ask themselves. Mm -hmm. Who are we? What are we, what, where, what have we been? What are we becoming? What, what say you to this? <laughs> <laughs> I say that's an excellent question. Um, 
One of the interesting things about the Lord of the Rings is throughout the entire book, they are fighting to save the world. And yet, as you point out, for the elves, the world is, they are leaving. Their, their story is done. But for humans, it's not. For humans, I know I keep saying humans instead of men in the book. Um, I apologize. If, you know, for Tolkien purists, some people would have a problem with me saying that. But just want to, you know, remember this includes everybody, even Eowyn. Um, so for humans, there's a different future ahead than for the elves. And that is actually something that was set out in the Silmarillion that humans and elves have a very different story. And so working with what does that even mean in terms of us and our lives today? Are we elves and our world is passing away or are we humans at a point where, yes, things are stressful, but if the right people do the right things, the little people do the right things, not just the big people, the world will change for the good. For for the humans, they got a king back, which they hadn't had for a very long time. And that actually, he's a very good king and the world will change for the better. Not permanently, because that is also part of Tolkien's worldview that evil will rise up again. Fun piece of trivia that I'm, I'm hesitating to even talk about. There's Tolkien was asked to write a sequel to The Lord of the Rings. We all know that. He sent his publisher, The Silmarillion, and they said, uh, no. He actually started another story and it was taking place in the era of Aragorn's son is the king. And in that story, evil starts to rise again. He stopped it and explains to his publisher, it's in one of the letters here, what he tells his publisher, um, that actually he didn't want to finish the story because it's just a thriller and nothing else. And he doesn't want to write just thrillers. So in that even his, his, we see his perspective that yes, evil keeps coming back and good people always have to fight it. But the Lord of the Rings is telling us something else besides that. And he, he calls the Lord of the Rings in another letter, a story of fighting the long defeat. Even if it looks like you're going to fail and your world will end, you still need to do what is right. And the characters over and over and over again, I'm reading it through because I'm teaching a Tolkien class. And one of the things that strikes me, I'm at the beginning of the Return of the King. One of the things that strikes me is every, one of the good guys, with the possible exception of Legolas and Gimli, talk about hope. They use that word hope over and over and over again. And I really think that's a big part of the story is, or the point of the story is that even if it looks like everything is dark, even if it looks like we're headed to destruction, there's always hope. And as Sam Gamgee says, hope and need for uh, vittles or victuals, uh, anyway. Yeah, need for food. <laughs> Stephen, you were shaking your head a bit. I just was curious if you had a, a, any thought struck you or anything like that. No, no, no. I was just having a very cheesy thought about uh, uh, the, about the, the Obama picture with hope underneath. And I was just thinking of Frodo and Sam. <laughs> hope. <laughs> Somebody needs to do that. <laughs> that Totally derails the conversation, Chris. You should not have thrown to me. <laughs> well, I was going to say, even saying that, there's a passage in The Two Towers where Sam realizes that he hasn't had hope and he's been moving forward without hope, but he's been moving forward with the belief in doing the right thing. Or he's, 
thinks that's what he's doing. But the reality is even when Frodo says, why do we need any more food than to get to Mount Doom? Sam at some level saying, no, I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to plan ahead and say, can we get, how can we get back? Yeah. Um, so even when characters are saying things or making it look like they don't think they have hope, the really strongest characters are going to keep acting as though there is. Well, and, even, even Gimli says, what, isn't it like, doesn't he have that thing? He says, come on, Legolas, you're going to walk with me in those caves one day. We're going to come back. That's true. He does. Yeah. So he doesn't use the word hope, but he is talking yeah. in a very hopeful way. He makes future yes. plans. <laughs> yes, definitely. Okay, so so we we can talk about these big big things, these weights that are put upon us in our age. Uh, but I want to end with something small. I want to end with maybe going back to our vittles here, if, if that's the proper word. Uh, there's this striking scene at the end of Return of the King, or towards the end, where they meet Saruman on the road. And uh, and I want to parallel this a little bit with the work of, of Lewis. And and what's funny, you you earlier you you know you somewhat hesitantly said the moral of the story, and um, you and I have had some good discussions. Uh, I I had a failed episode of my own podcast where we talked about uh, the space C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, mm -hmm. and how in some ways the culmination of those books is good friends getting together and having a uh, good drink and good food and just a good time. There might be singing, there might be dancing, there might just be games, conversation. What I see on the road with, with Saruman is this last opportunity to change. Mm -hmm. and, and he even says to them, he says, have you, have you come here? Are you meeting me here to gloat over me and to, to make me feel bad once again or whatever he says. And they just basically offer him this ridiculous grace like, like they, they are way nicer to him. And maybe this is a whole other conversation is maybe they were irresponsible. They should, probably should have put some handcuffs on him and stopped him. But that's another conversation. Uh, but really what they're offering him is, hey, just come with us. We're going on our way. You know where we're going. We're no, you know where we're headed. Our time is passing. Just enjoy the road with us. Enjoy the time with us. Saruman, it can be different. And uh, I don't know exactly what question I have in this other than it, it seems in some ways the moral of the story is to enjoy each other and be in communion and fellowship with each other. Mm -hmm. and, uh, what, what, what can you offer us any, any reflections on that as you're reading through it once again? What, what, uh, what insights do you have to offer about that? I think the biggest, one of the biggest things that stood out for me besides hope is just how much the characters trust each other, spend time together, enjoy each other. Whether it's the characters in the fellowship who have built this relationship that so that when the fellowship breaks, they're willing, Legolas and Gimli are willing to go running off into the wilderness with Aragorn towards a army of orcs, three of them, how many hundreds of orcs, but they trust each other and they care about the other, the hobbits. And that decision was based on, well, Frodo and Sam have more hope than Merry and Pippin, who are currently in, um, you know, captured by orcs. So I think one of the things that Tolkien really presents is, and even like Aylmer and Aragorn, they connect very quickly. Um, Faramir and his kindness to Frodo and Sam 
even though at first he's not so sure what's going on with them. His trust of Frodo instead of when he's Frodo's talking to him about Gollum instead of saying, okay, I see what I see in Gollum. We're going to bump him off. It's our law. So it would be perfectly within our bounds to do it. But listening to Frodo because he's built this connection again and trusts Frodo because of mutual friends in this case. Frodo talks to him about Gandalf. Frodo knows his brother. He and Frodo actually recognize his brother's mistakes, even though they talk around it a little bit. Interesting how you've answered my question, because you've actually framed it, all of these little beautiful little instances of friendship in the uh -huh. midst of awful circumstances. Uh -huh. Like I was thinking, no, no, no. I wanted, I just want to be back in the Shire, safe and sound enjoying my life there you 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 did something interesting which is you picked all these little moments throughout the book where it's like in their moments of rest they mm -hmm. still just had these these beautiful bonds and these beautiful times of sharing and togetherness yeah i don't know I, that just strikes me as something so gorgeous <laughs> i agree yeah thank you thank you for being able to kind of flesh out what i was trying to say that's good that's, that's really right. well, well put what more what more do you have to say I, I did want to come back to your comment about Saruman because it's not just when they meet him on the road. That's one of three option, times he was offered a chance to repent. Uh, Gandalf gives him that, uh, that chance in front of the whole audience. They meet him, that, that's in, you know, Orthanc, um, when the orcs, or the orcs, the Ents have already wiped out his Isengard. He's trapped in his tower. That's his first chance. Second chance is on the road. Third chance is when a worm tongue has actually, you know, or I'm sorry, not Wormtongue. Um, isn't it, isn't it Saruman who stabs Frodo and uh, tries to stab Frodo? One of those two tries to stab Frodo. S Frodo actually says, don't hurt him. He hasn't hurt me. And Frodo offers him one more last chance. And then of course he gets killed right after that. So, but it's, it's three times he gets that option to repent and change. It's not just once. It's, it's fascinating because I think the one on the road is in some ways the tenderest of them and the, the nicest of them because it's a very, there isn't an audience this time. There's, and both the first one and the last one, there's a whole lot of other people watching. But this time it's the whole group saying, join us, be part of us. And the last one, Frodo's like, this is your last chance. You've got hope still, please. Um, so they never change towards him. But that, this, that actually, I think, leads to a whole other conversation that we don't have time for, but what Frodo actually learns from Aragorn and Gandalf, he changes across the story, and not just from bear, uh, carrying the ring, but from having been with, around, and learning from, and talking to both Gandalf and Aragorn. Um, but that's, like I said, a whole other conversation for a whole other time, but it's part of that friendship and that trust that they build their own characters grow and change because of who they're around and who they spend time with and who they listen to. Well, thank you so much for, you've, you've, you've given us a lot to ponder. Well, thank you, this has been fun. Let's, yeah, we, we appreciate your time. And, and in a sense, you know, we were not together. We were all in our separate places, but we've enjoyed some good time together. We've enjoyed some good fellowships <laughs> around a great story that we keep talking about. And uh, so thank you so much. And, uh, you know, thank you, Melody. Thank you both. This has been great. Yeah. So cheers and have a great day. <laughs> thank you. You too. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology 
at www.tenttheology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.